condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley, my co-host this week, Harrison Keeley. Hello. And Alan Martin. Hi, everyone. All righty, let's get behind the headlines. World in crisis. We want to cover three main things this week, but as always, the floor is open to anything anyone would like to discuss. Do call in or pop up in our chat room. Anything, anything on your mind? The big topics, I suppose, is the fallout of the UK election, um, which took place Thursday. It may not be the last one we've seen there this year. Um, what a mess. We'll be looking at that. We'll also be looking at the, well, arguably the big news last week. I mean, it's pretty explosive. Um, not many fireworks have been gone off yet, but, uh, oh, Jesus, Middle East could blow up. Well, Probably won't, but on paper, it looks bad. That's the story about Qatar's um, apparent outing as the evil mastermind behind terror. Of course, that's not really what happened, but the Saudis did make some bizarre statements in justifying their sudden blockade siege against the tiny Gulf state um, early last week. <laughs> They couldn't get their story straight. They started with one thing and then led to another and another. We'll be getting into what's really going on there. We're also going to try and touch on the Philippines because it's all connected. ISIS. Doesn't matter where you are, ISIS is there. They pop up at just the right time to influence political processes, which is really interesting because <clears throat> apparently that's what the Russians excel at. But no, I think ISIS are way better. They have the knack of popping up and influencing things, be they elections, be they even things of more more importance than that, like alliances between countries and uh, shifting the shifting geopolitical plates going on out there. Okay, so gentlemen, what do we talk about first? UK elections? Yeah, let's do the elections because... Okay. Yeah, because because of Jedi Corbin. Corbin. <laughs> Jedi Corbin. Jedi Master Corbin. Obi Wan Corbin. <laughs> Obi Wan Corbin. <laughs> well, he is kind of a. Jedi, He's a very likable guy. And I think he, yeah, I with think that beard, fairly well, despite what everyone says about <laughs> him. <laughs> but it's been uh, ridiculous. The, ever since he became the. Uh, leader of the Labour Party in the UK. The, the reaction to him was so over the top. I think it drew more attention to him mm-hmm. than anything else he said himself could have. You know, it, I, I've said it before on, on recent shows, like, I know people in the UK who, who have no interest, um, who have had no interest in politics. Mm-hmm. Um anything really of any significance in the media 
until recently. And what got them going wasn't because, oh, they found some conspiracy stuff on, on the alternate web. It was because they were just listening passively and they realized, they, they, they could see for themselves that the BBC or other mainstream media had only bad things to say about someone. And, and, and the most superficial things, like he, he dresses really badly. Really. I mean, look at him. Look, oh, God. Oh. Like, and that drew attention to the issues, which is very funny, but it just shows you, this goes to show, like, they're, they're sinking their own ship. I'm not even sure how much they realize that themselves. So, yeah, Corbyn didn't win, though. I mean, he didn't lose Solis. Well, he did lose. I mean, he's not going to be the next prime minister, but, um, I predicted well. I didn't. I wasn't so surprised by the result, but I, I kind of did think all other things being equal, he would win, because frankly, I saw very little online support for the Tories. Of course, there are those people who don't really go online much, tend to be maybe older, actually conservative types, um, who probably just quietly voted for the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, but online, like, I mean, everyone was just mocking Theresa May and, and the government. So uh, I didn't see, unless they rigged it, really, there's no way that uh, the Tories could have gotten, a, certainly they couldn't have gotten a bigger result than they had in the 2015 election. Anyway, they didn't get it. Uh, everyone agrees that they shot themselves in the foot by calling this election, which was ostensibly to increase the majority government they already had and therefore go into Brexit negotiations with the EU with a stronger backing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if that was the reason for it, the primary one or the sole one, it's completely backfired. So the situation is now more instability in the UK and instability in one country inevitably creates instability in neighboring countries. So this is a symptomatic and of consequence for Britain's neighbors in Europe, in Ireland, of course. We can get into that in a minute. There are so many contradictions with the results here. And with the kind of um, potential alliances that might form, um, everyone's been hearing now about the DUP. The DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland, is like <laughs> I, I think a lot of a lot of British people are learning about them for the first time, <laughs> which is extraordinary, um, but not surprising. The, this now is suddenly there's media attention on them because. This is a party that the Tories have just uh, gotten together with in their new coalition. Is that right, Neil? Right, right. They need to. They need the ten seats of the DUP, who are the only natural allies of the unionist, conservative, nominally centre-right uh, Tory party. Uh, they need those. They need the support of the 10 seats won by the Democratic Unionists, which is 
a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing. They're, they're unionists. They just stuck democratic in front of their – these people are anything but democratic. Anyway, they need the DUP because that gives them a majority government. In other words, they, they get enough seats in parliament to actually function. So Theresa May proposes a law. In theory, all of her party plus the DUP support it. And government can actually function. It's not going to work like that in practice because you always get dissenters and rebellions. And that's part of the reason, I think, why an election was called. There have been so many rebellions on different issues from her own party that it was hampering the function of government to pass the laws. And they call this thinking they were going to get a landslide. They, they would get not only a majority, but they would go beyond that and it would be, you know, block solid victory. Off we go. We go forward. So I'm not surprised. The only thing I think I would say is that I'm surprised that it they even managed to limp across the line. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some strange results. Um, somehow the SNP, the Scottish Nationalist Party, went from basically winning every seat but one or two in Scotland in 2015 to losing almost half of them just now. And not only did they lose half of them, maybe to a, a, a random spread of other parties, they lost them to the Union, to the Scottish, to, to the Conservatives, to Theresa May's party. It's complex because there's a sub-branch, but they're basically the same party. The Scottish Conservatives are called that in name, but really uh, they're the all-UK Conservative Party. So, what the heck happened there? Did the Scots suddenly decide, no, independence is no longer what we want? Not only that, we want to remain within the Union with the Tories. It's uh, very weird. I'll just say that. Yeah, because weren't the... Um, weren't the... Like a lot of the Scots in the re- in recent months essentially saying because that they didn't want Brexit, so they wanted to have another referendum so that they could become independent and then basically join the EU separate from the UK. Is that correct? Uh, hang on. Say, put it, but say, say, it, say it in... In different I, words? I, I, didn't, I didn't get all that. Say it again. Okay. Yeah. So, well, maybe I'm... This is just from like reading headlines, so I may have a, my grasp of the situation wrong. But I got the impression over the past several months that, um, like the SNP and maybe just a lot of Scots in general, wanted another referendum in order to basically get get the independence they didn't get, mm-hmm. and then that would enable them to join the EU on their own because they didn't want Brexit. Is that accurate? Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah, the SNP has, um, yeah, it's, it's it's gone this tactic of um, being pro-EU at the level of the party. And this this is one of the contradictions coming up here. I suspect that there's a significant enough number of Scots who, when they say when they want independence from London, they don't also don't want to be joining uh, the EU. Oh, we've got a call on the line here. We take this. Caller, are you on the okay. line? Who's on the line? It's me. Can you it's, hear me? 
It's me. It's you. Who's that? <laughs> My name is Joe. Hi, Joe. Joe, where are you going? Win. <laughs> What's going on? Carry on. I'm just, I'm just going to listen. <laughs> All right. Well, Joe Quinn, that's not your real name, is it? We know someone called you. No. Yeah. No, it is. Yeah, that's my real name. <laughs> Joe, tell us. Uh, tell us all. What What do you make of this outcome? Well, I mean, you were you were pretty much uh, spelling it out there, but um, and Harrison's question was, I think, was Harrison's description of it was uh, was accurate that. Um, yeah, that the that the concert the Scottish National Party, um, as you said, Neil lost a bunch of seats. I think. Hello, everyone. I think we're back. We lost a connection for some reason. Can you hear us all? In the chat there. Well, it's all good on my end. What about you guys in the chat room? Okay. Yeah, we can. It's working now. Okay. And Joe, you're still with us. Yes. All right. Okay. Sorry about that, everyone. So, uh, well, we lost we lost the connection right right as Joe was talking about the SNP losing a whole bunch of votes or seats to the Conservatives. That's the last thing we heard. He was about to bust the okay. whole thing wide open. <laughs> yeah. So you can still hear me then, yeah? Yep. Bust away. Okay. Well, no, I was just saying that uh, the idea that the, the SNP would lose would lose a bunch of seats to Conservatives is just absolutely ridiculous, you know, because I'm in two years. I mean, what's being present, what's being presented to the public here, uh, to, for them to believe and to accept, is that two years ago, a bunch of di- a bunch of SNP supporters, which are diehard Scottish nationalists who want independence, would two years later vote for the Conservatives, who have done everything possible to stop Scottish independence. Uh, how that would could possibly ever happen in a normal world is uh, is beyond me. I've heard I was saying that, I, that there's a lot of people. Uh, am I still on you? You are, yeah. Okay. There's, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of people on Facebook when I when I post this question, how this could possibly happen. A lot of people on Facebook were going into all sorts of mental gymnastics in terms of trying to explain why the SNP lost these votes, and they were saying it was like you know protest votes from other people and blah blah, and none of it made any sense. And uh, the only thing, and, and the reason they ha- the reason they had to engage in this in these mental gymnastics was because. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, and the only thing that really makes sense in that situation is rigging. But of mm-hmm. course, in any Western democratic country, to say to, su- to suggest that rigging happens on a regular basis is like walking into mass on Sunday and saying that Jesus doesn't exist. You know, people will just like be right. horrified and, and drop dead, and, and it's just it's not allowed. You know, to say that. But in this situation, to me, it's the only reason. And there's a lot of means, motive, and opportunity for for that to happen because. Um, if they rigged the vote in Scotland by taking votes away from the SNP and giving them to Conservatives, they allowed the Conservatives then, with the DUP, to form a majority to at least have more than 50% of the seats in, in Parliament uh, overall elected to Westminster yeah. Parliament. And and also, the upshot of that is is that um, everybody's saying in Scotland that, well, well, since the SNP lost so many votes, uh, or lost so many seats, 
they're not going to have another referendum. So they, they kind of killed two birds with one stone there. They got mm-hmm. Theresa May in and they got rid of a second, the threat of a second uh, Scottish referendum, which people in Whitehall down in Westminster are, are, you know, backroom boys, the kind of like high-level civil servants who run the government behind the scenes are like absolutely death on that idea of Scotland breaking away because Scotland is full of natural resources. It's a very rich country in and of itself and they want to keep it for themselves. And one more, just one little thing, I, I, was, I was reading a, a, a um, an article in the newspaper today, and apparently, guess what? This is what two days after the two two days after the election, two three days after the election. But the, I think the poll was done a couple of days ago. Labour is now ahead of the ahead of the Tories in a national poll. Right, Mr. Corbyn's Mr. Corbyn's party, yeah, forty five percent now. So apparently, if you had the election today, the Labour Party would win a majority. <laughs> so, you know, of course they're going to say, well, that's because you know people's you know, the after-the-fact side with the winner or, 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 I mean, and the Labour Party seemed to have won this election even though it didn't get a majority. Uh, people then, you know, suddenly say, oh, well, what, if the media centuries and the Conservative really lost this election, well, then I should then turn from being a Conservative to being Labour. But anyway, the result of a poll is, is that, so, I mean, all of these things, you put them together and you go, there's probably rigging going on there. You know, there's got to be rigging. All of it suggests rigging. And, uh, but like I said, you're not allowed yeah. to say that. So, well, I've got a question. Here's the just thing, maybe, bef- yeah. Before we get into more of the details, I've just got a question about the the basics of the way the uh, the government works over there. Because so what we had, we had this election where the Conservatives won the most votes, but they didn't make an, they didn't get enough to make a majority government. So mm-hmm. the, the next biggest party is the Labour Party, and then a bunch of you know minor parties that got you know numbers of other seats. And mm-hmm. because the, the Conservatives don't have a majority, they in order to form a government, they need to form a coalition. So they've chosen mm-hmm. this uh, the the Unionist Party in in Ireland. But mm-hmm. so how how does this play out from now on? It, does the so what happens? You know, first of all, if they're not able to form a coalition, or if the Labour party forms a coalition with the SNP like um, like it's it's well I saw a headline that that might be the case that the SNP is saying they might form a coalition with labor in order to stop uh, the conservatives from making it so how does this play out do like will it will it go to another election or you know what how does it work in those situations well the the first I think it's it's a lot of it's very vague, you know, in the sense that um, it's, it's almost on sentiment, you know, uh, in the sense that deference is given to the party that won the most seats, which okay. is the Conservative Party, to form a government if they can. Uh, if they can't, then Labour would come in and it would try and form a government. I mean, but I think even if Labour uh, were to form a coalition with the SNP, it still wouldn't have enough seats to, have to form a majority government. I, you know, <clears throat> basically more than 50% of the seats in the House of Parliament have to be owned by or, or held by uh, 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 one party or a coalition of parties. And they tend to not want to have coalitions of parties because, you know, there can be a lot of, uh, it's hard to, you know, get different types of parties to, to, to agree to, to come together, you know, so it's quite yeah. rare in that sense. And that's why Theresa May had very little option other than the DUP because every other party in the UK is basically anti-conservative. Um, and it was just these unionists, uh, the small Northern Irish unionist party, uh, they don't like to call it, they don't like to call themselves Irish or Northern Irish really. They like to call themselves uh, British. These are like diehard. These people are, you know, more more British than the Queen basically, or see themselves as more British than the Queen, you know. Uh, and they're um, they they, they kind of 
they're kind of like a bad smell for the for the for the Westminster people, the, the actual English and British people in the UK. They kind of like they're these people who are like they're almost like you know Dr. Frankenstein's Igor, you know, yes, master, whatever you want, you know. They're like they just want to be. They're so afraid of uh, of being overcome or or you know, overrun by Catholics, Irish people in Ireland that, that they cling desperately to the Queen and Buckingham Palace and their British identity and stuff. Um, uh, they're just, they're very sad people actually, really. But, I mean, these are the only people who she could actually form a a, a coalition with. The only option really were them. Uh, and they had 10 seats and those 10 seats were enough because she was lacking like six or seven or something to form a majority. So she, she and but she's not even forming a coalition with them. They're just going to be like assisting or, or providing support and some other word they said, but it's not actually a, a formal coalition. So it's all really based on sentiment. She really doesn't have, you know, uh, these people aren't actually going to hold any ministerial posts. They're not going to not going to give like one ministerial post post to a DUP member. They're just going to be in the background saying yeah, like standing over the conservative shoulder whenever they try to pass some policies and going yeah, yeah, do what they want because we we got their back kind of thing, you know. So not going to they're not going to really have any power. So it's all a bit of a joke in a certain sense, you know. But these DUP people just if there's one thing I would say about the DUP people is that in their constituencies, in the DUP constituencies in Northern Ireland, in Belfast and in different other places where they're kind of their supporters, the heartland of their supporters, what you'll see very often is a Union Jack flag in, in, in Northern Ireland flying on the lampposts and below it an Israeli flag. Hmm. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the kind of people they're talking and about. And often, often the old South African flag, the apartheid right. South African flag. Anybody who's they into racism at any point... Anyone who is evangelical, extreme right, yeah. I mean, they would put up. Right. They have actually. They're, they had had marches and they've held banners um, holding up the KKK. So yeah. this is more That's than important. these guys are right, but not in the way that you know the alt right gets castigated for being aligned with the KKK. No, these guys actually like the KKK because they did that kind of thing and, frankly, still have that attitude in Ireland yeah. of. Lynching those not like yeah. us. They're really of an extreme mentality. Well, just, yeah, just getting back to Harrison's uh, question for just a moment, there, there's another dimension to all this that you touched on earlier in the introduction, Neil, and that is that, um, and, and Adam Gary, I think, says something like this in, in one of his recent articles. Um, basically, uh, <coughs> labor uh, lost a battle, but they won the war. Um, or that they're they're on their way to winning the war, and um, he didn't mean that so much in in the practical sense of of getting legislation through uh, Parliament necessarily, but his point was that there has been such a groundswell of uh, of inspiration of um, of people hearing Corbyn's message uh, in the past few weeks, especially, uh, and also. Uh, May just kind of revealing herself for being the kind of political creature that she is. That um, that you know, as you were saying, Neil, you know, there, there are people paying attention to this uh, who haven't been paying attention or, or feeling uh, involved or, or empowered in any way to to be supportive of any political leader in, in the UK for a very long time. Um, so, you know, Corbyn by just by just basically speaking common sense, you know, not wanting to engage in uh, in wars of intervention, not wanting to support NATO, uh, not wanting to um, enforce or, or uh, 
put into place any kind of austerity laws, uh, you know, very basic things. And, and he had thousands of people showing up to his rallies out of sheer enthusiasm as opposed to May's, you know, few dozen uh, kind of people showing up here and there uh, for these photo ops. Um, so uh, I think that there's a greater amount of awareness in the UK, people feeling empowered. Uh, just this morning, you know, I read this article about um, a highway uh, traffic in, in the UK being slowed down somewhere, and there being these two signs that were put up uh, by a guy, and basically the signs read, um, Theresa, Theresa May and shaking hands at Saudi Arabia equals terrorism. So you have people kind of emboldened to to, to uh, strike on this very important message, especially on the heels of, of what's happened in, in recent weeks, that that effectively she's responsible for the terrorism with her open door policy on immigration and, and other things. So um, who knows what effect this will have in, in helping labor to change laws or to even block uh, the Tories' new proposals, but it seems like there's a, a wind of change that we're seeing there uh, that that's that's probably as inspirational and positive and constructive as anything we've seen anywhere else politically in the past, I don't know, long time. Right. Yeah. Um, the UK is just rife with contradictions. Um, this, this, this is what I call a cascading crisis. So this has not gone away. It's only been put off for another while now. Um, all the contradictions are coming to the fore. I mean, here's one of them. Theresa May attacked Corbyn on the basis that he was a sympathizer of terrorism. Now, they nicely conflated that message by suggesting that he was a sympathizer with Hamas and thus with current modern-day Islamic terrorism and his good relationship with uh, Sinn Féin in the past, in the 80s and 90s. And therefore, Corbyn equals terrorist. Well, look what's just happened. For Theresa May to get remain as prime minister, technically for the next five years, she's had to partner with the DUP. Now, the DUP, they weren't the original unionist party. There was another older unionist party. The DUP were the... Were the they were the extremists. These guys actually held the guns and were involved in the violence. They were terrorists slash kind of proxy. They, they colluded with the British state. The British state itself wasn't um, cleaning this at all, of course. So the DUP literally, Theresa May is getting into government with an actual terrorist faction, or at least the descendants of it, and still very much connected to those who do still do a little bit of violence and you know, tomorrow could pick up guns again. Um, it's an incredible contradiction, but there it is. It's just one of many. You, you mentioned the Saudi connections. Well, people in the UK are talking big time after Manchester and then at the second um, attack in London just before the election about the Saudi connection. You know, and then Theresa May is clamping down on any, you know, on the publishing of that report into Saudi, which apparently was full of stuff about Saudi funding of Islamic terrorism, or certainly of the radicalization process um, that leads to the terrorism, they, they have to clamp down on that, you know? And yeah, it's a contradiction. It's a contradiction within the country. The contradiction is in, in its international relations. Um, the contradiction with the EU, 
here's why this is nowhere. This is not going to go anywhere, and it could be months, not years, before another election is called. Um, the DUP and Northern Ireland is going to it's going to come up as a major issue in Brexit because the 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 Irish Prime Minister Taoiseach and and the Kelly and the Kenny just today um, reminded the British that you know. Uh, the EU has suggested strongly that what a Brexit could mean for Ireland is basically the dangling of the carrot of Irish reunification, namely that the North will rejoin the Republic. Um, That's just one issue. There's a more immediate, a more domestic issue that's not related to Europe is the fact that the only reason there was a peace of any kind in the north of Ireland in the 1990s was because, at least officially, the Irish government in Dublin and the British in London serve as guarantors of the peace process in the north. But now there's a situation where London must be in government with the the, the London government must be sharing government with <laughs> one of the people that's supposed to be a guarantor of it. it it's a contradiction that that just it's it's so in your face. It's it's not it's, it's not going to last. Um, and yeah, you, you can you can predict whatever you want. There could be an election very soon. Um, they probably will start off with the Conservatives and the DUP for a while. Um, but it's going nowhere fast. Absolutely, absolutely nowhere. Um, I, I I don't know. I mean. The, it, the, the two issues are even linked. There's a crazy. There's um, someone found something. It actually was found a few months ago, but it only recently got into mainstream press in the UK. Um, there was a on the eve of the Brexit referendum last year. There was a major um, advertisement that appeared. It was a four-page spread that covered the the free newspaper, the Metro, and it was blasted out there on the eve of, of the Brexit referendum. Someone found out that the D, the DUP, this little party in the north of Ireland, paid for that. Well, how do they pay for that? That was the single largest political expense that tiny party had ever made. It turns out that the, they got the money for that from a contrain, uh, campaign contribution from a Scottish conservative who was himself the minor party in a partnership with a Saudi royal a Saudi royal, one of the princes, probably a billionaire himself, who is former Saudi intelligence, a Saudi royal who, like many of them, graduated from Sandhurst Military Academy, which is the like the elite school for the British elite, and, and the Saudi elite for that matter. And this guy is 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 agitating for Brexit, and you can bet your bottom dollar that he's doing that for at least elements of the UK establishment. And it brings us all back. What was Brexit? Why did they push for that? Did they have some idea in mind and it's blown up in their faces? It's, it's, it's hard to make out, but um, it could be that there was a grand idea and it has blown up in their faces. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go with that for now. But I've, oh, I've been wondering since, since I wrote about it last year, why in God's name did they hold this referendum? They, they must have seen the precedence 
the mm-hmm. French held a referendum on, on the EU constitution in the mid-2000s. Months later, the Dutch followed suit, and that was it, because both had large majorities saying no and, and, and nay. And that was the end of putting this to the people. And the EU has carried, it's been 10 years now, and it's just said, well, the hell with that. We'll, we'll stick to being a bureaucracy um, with no no little or no dem- democratic interaction, because obviously the people don't know what they're doing. So when they decide to hold this referendum, they must have had a good idea it was going to go this way. Well, must. I don't know. They certainly sounded and acted very surprised, and it's produced this impasse inside the country. Maybe it's backfired. Maybe, maybe it is kind of like what I thought at the time. It was meant to destabilize Europe a tad as a kind of a, um, a poke to Germany, which has become economically dominant. It's the dominant country in the EU. And it's backfired spectacularly, and it's actually drastically destabilized the UK. Don't know. But uh, there it is. Contradictions abound, and along comes Jeremy Corbyn, and he, he's, he's another contradiction because he's not just, oh, oh God, another mainstream party candidate. He's actually someone, you know, of sound mind who wants to undo what Blair did to that party. In other words, he's a real alternative candidate. Of course, there's a, there is some loony left stuff bound up in, in the program and the ideas. Um, for the most part, it's, it's relatively harmless compared with the, the status quo and the direction that it is taking things in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the populist candidate. And the bottom line, I think, right now, on a day-to-day working basis for the, for the establishment in the, in the UK, is that Jeremy Corbyn cannot come to power. Maybe that's changing right now. I mean, they might have to accept that reality. But hitherto, from the moment he became the, the leader of the opposition party in 2015, he was labeled public threat to national security number one. Mm-hmm. And even it's 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 difficult even for 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 the for the let's say the liberal London Londoners, I mean of the elites now, not you know ordinary folk to countenance having Jeremy Corbyn, who sounds so nicely liberal, doesn't he? It's even difficult for them to stomach the idea of him being the Prime Minister. Uh, There's an old hand who popped up this week. His name's Hesseltine. Um, He was was momentarily leader of the Conservatives in the early 90s. He's an elder statesman. He's a bit like a, a British Kissinger. And maybe not quite so evil, I don't know. Um, but he said something like, this guy, to give you an idea, he's of the liberal wing of the Tories. So he's pro-EU. He never wanted Brexit to happen. But even for him, uh, Brexit, the issue of Brexit comes second to what doing whatever it takes to keep Corbyn out of power. The DUP, interestingly, in their campaign prior to this election, before they're suddenly in the headlines and in the spotlight, said similar things. Their, their you know, their lifeblood, their, their political raison d'etre is to be anyone but the Irish. But even for them, it flipped. They were saying things like anyone but Corbyn. 
And that's why they jumped at the opportunity to join the Conservatives. There's a natural alliance between them ideologically. And they have a shared immediate goal in doing whatever it takes to prevent Corbyn being Prime Minister. So that's the, that's the bottom line. Something, the system, is, there's an instinctive hatred for the guy. And you, you get an idea of the shenanigans they've, they've gone through to tarnish him and to prevent him um, through terrorism, through uh, smearing him nonstop, uh, and now possibly through fiddling with the election results. Mm. It doesn't matter really at the end of the day because the momentum, like you said, the wind of change is with him. Uh, the polls are now officially acknowledging the reality that he is the most popular candidate. And yeah, we'll see what happens. It's I think it's interesting. I think the, uh, Go on. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that uh, a certain faction within the British establishment actually did want uh, Brexit to happen, you know. Um, right. And at the same time, and at the same time, wanted um, Corbyn and lefty liberal, lefty lefty kind of socialist labour types that he represents uh, from from getting into power, you know. And and they thought that having a, a Brexit referendum and and having it go the way of Brexit, basically, like leaving the EU, would would help uh, to consolidate a kind of a conservative dominance or conservative mindset uh, mindset set, uh, in in the UK, uh, like a nationalistic mindset, which, from a political perspective and from a business perspective, uh, facilitates the kind of continued fleecing of of the public, basically, uh, via you know, uh, selling off of state assets like the NHS, National Health Service, and the rails and the roads and all that kind of stuff, selling all those off to private businesses and basically making a, a, the UK like a, a capitalist uh, kind of nightmare, effectively, you know? And they, they figured that Brexit... And poor in Europe. Take, right, and taking them out of Europe uh, would, would facilitate that, would, would facilitate that fleecing that, you know, of, of the people and of the country, basically, under a... a, a Hardline kind of nationalistic, anti-Europe, anti-Muslim immigrant uh, regime, you know, which would be the Conservatives, you know, and of course that was very much in line with the DUP in Northern Ireland because they're right-wing nut jobs, you know, uh, basically a bunch of Neanderthals. So, um, you know, I think that was their kind of some some faction within the British establishment had that plan, you know, to push push uh, the UK further down that line of isolation, nationalism, and uh, kind of corporate gouging of the of the country and the people. And uh, of course, but of course, the, the the process that they engaged in to get to that that uh, to try to get to that point, which including Brexit and anti-immigration rhetoric, and the continued fleecing of the of the of state institutions and and, and privatisation of state institutions, has led to the backlash uh, in in terms of massive support for for Corbyn. So these people who who try to run the world in this way or run certain countries, they just they're clueless. You don't realise that they can't push stuff like that too far. They can't push their own greed. They can't they can't take forever and more and more uh, uh, and, and not expect that at some point people are going to react. I mean, they, I don't know, they think they can, just with the media and, and with politicians staying strong and stable uh, enough times that they can bamboozle the people forever. I mean, so they, it seems to me that they seriously underestimate, they seriously underestimate the people in terms of their, their, their level of awareness, intelligence that they still have, even though it's small, or they're just basically blinded by their own greed, you know, uh, and they think that, uh, you know, they're basically, it's a kind of like a sickness, you know, they're basically pathologically greedy, and uh, they only allow things into the reality that fits with what they already believe, which is that we're going to be able to feast 
you know, f- f- till kingdom come, basically forever, you know. Yeah. Um, some of the scarier things that came out, they, they kind of got sidelined by the election results, which was has been taken as a shocking surprise to everyone in the UK. So, so you know, it's all about the election. But there were a few things said in the run-up to it. Um, when, of course, terrorism was dominating. Um, the, the, the I word came out, internment. And this is this is another issue. I mean, the UK, the UK has a dodgy history with that, to say the least, with using internment in in the north of Ireland as recently as the nineteen seventies. Um, however, it's it's interesting that it comes out. You know, there's two what three terror attacks quickly, and then there's these whispers, mostly coming through, of course, the, the right wing tabloids in the UK, but even by the more respected, let's say, um, certainly online people like Nigel Farage. I mean, they're bringing up internment as, of course, it makes sense on the face of it, right? You've got a situation mm-hmm. where you're under sustained terror attacks. Well, okay, we've got a, we've got three thousand people on a list, and sure enough, someone on those on that list keep popping up and doing these things, right? So we need to eat, we need to separate them and or deport them. So the the conversation is happening. It's still kind of mm-hmm. more like fringe, but it, it's happening. Um, and it's happening in the UK. Let me let me tell you about the UK. It's, this is the country, right? If you haven't seen this documentary yet, look for it. G- the Jihadist Next Door. It's it's a Channel Four British mainstream documentary about radical Islamist nutjobs on the streets of the UK, getting getting government welfare. They're not working. They're just going around and pissing as many people off as they can, trying to recruit mm-hmm. people. London in particular, but the UK in general, has been notoriously lenient and still is for all the talk from Theresa May. She was Home Secretary the last few years in, in the Cameron government. So she, she oversaw all the extreme measures that are either uh, on ice or actually implemented at the legal level. For example, uh, if, if someone is suspected of association with terrorists, we will remove his passport and he'll never leave the country. But people still kept leaving the country. Anyway, watch this documentary because it shows you in practice what happens to these guys. They get they get hauled up before the courts and then they somehow always get off the hook. Mm. And it, it films them coming out of the courts and they have this cheeky grin on their face and they're asked by the reporter who's been following them for a year or two as they go about their... Uh, proselytizing on the streets and the reporter asked him so how come they let you out this time I mean you did flagrantly infringe the admittedly uh, arcane and, and, and strict laws against saying certain things like supporting ISIS and the guys will just grin at the camera and go I don't know in this cheeky like cockney accents I don't know and then they just smile and walk away well we damn well do know it's really obvious at this point when you see Theresa May shaking hands with the Saudis over and over, multi-billion dollar mm-hmm. deals for weapons. Um, the British establishment and, 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 and the long history, like I mentioned earlier, of training the Saudi elites, um, training their police forces at UK institutions, these people are inseparable. So, yes, the Islamists are out there. Yes, there's 3,000 whatever number of them. Yes, the intelligence services know all about them. Yes, the legal system knows all about them because they're in and out of the courts every other day, and they keep getting away with it. 
that's a decision. It's it's well, conspiracy if you want to call it that. It's it, it's an agreement, a tacit agreement to let these guys fester and fester, because in the end they they, they serve the ends justify the means or whatever it is, they serve the interests of the elite because now we have a situation where they can have things like internment and it'll be in the air, it'll never be expressed directly, but the real concern is that those damn lefties, which is basically normal people in Britain, might actually take over. Things might actually become normal here. Mm. And and they're clinging on to power and they need ISIS. This isn't really just this isn't the DUP conservative coalition. This is the ISIS conservative coalition we're looking at here. Head choppers and uh, weapons makers, right. funders, and not just that. sellers, <clears throat> united. It, and, and I was going to say not just that, but uh, those things, but also f- in the background and, and kind of in a long-running kind of sense, the the idea the idea that there would be or the fact of there being uh, Muslim terrorists or the Muslim terrorist threat in European countries is very useful for European leaders, particularly the British and to some extent the French, uh, in terms of justifying or having creating a climate, an anti-Muslim, particularly anti-Middle Eastern or North African Muslim climate within their home countries, because they have a long-term and they know they have a long-term and ongoing a direct interest in making sure the Middle East stays uh, kind of the way it has been for the past 30 or 40 or 50 years, i.e. Uh, run by clan states. Yeah, run by clan states, Western clan states in the Middle East. Now, if you want to have an assurance of, or always have the, have the assurance of always having the, the, the opportunity or the option to at any point in time uh, spent a couple of days in the media trumping up the need to uh, invade or have more troops sent to a like British troops sent to a Middle Eastern country. Um, if you want to have that option all the time, well, then you need to have a, a kind of rationale for the public. You need to have public sentiment that will not uh, question it too much. And the way they get the public back home not to question it too much is to have uh, or to have had this long-term process of demonization of Muslims. Uh, and not just demonization, but actually having Saudi Arabia fund extremist Islamist, Islamic uh, schools and teaching and stuff, uh, right up to the point of encouraging people to have uh, Muslims in, in the Middle East to, to engage in terror attacks, because that's good for both the Saudis and Western powers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned France. It, Macron has just said, oh, something like, well, but the, the, off the bat, they've extended the state of emergency in France. To November, mm. but there's talk now in the press in France of, oh, I think it was Macron himself. He said, "Well, there are so many elements of the existing legislation for the for the state of emergency that are to be found in French common law anyway." Dot dot dot. Right. I.e., this will be indefinite. And at the same time, the guy is like, "Bring all your Muslims here. Come on in. Come." <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Where do they think this is going to go? Well, he probably knows. I don't know. Well, Neil, just on the subject of internment, um, I found it interesting that uh, so one of the leading proponents of it is a retired kind of police chief of, or inspector of London 
um, who is, uh, you know, like you're saying, on the surface of it, you know, practical solution. We have these 3,000, you know, known jihadis out there that we have to kind of now isolate, uh, yada, yada, yada. And um, it was interesting to, to note that he was actually kind of the head of things during the um, the terror attacks in, I believe it was 2004, 2005, the 7-7 uh, mm-hmm. London bus and subway bombings. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if he was in such a position then uh, to kind of uh, be in charge of things, you know, it, it just seems like, and it was so obviously to anyone who was on the inside of, of security services of London that this was a, a false flag, unless you're a total idiot, you had to have, you know, either been in on it or realized to some level you know, how this was a manufactured event. So it's just interesting to me that this same guy, um, who sounds very reasonable and responsible, I even watched him in some documentary about uh, racism in, in England. Uh, he was being interviewed. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it has to be uh, that, that he is kind of playing both sides of this, of this uh, demonization of Muslim narrative. Uh, you know, on one hand, he's he's helping things along, um, quite probably with with those attacks of seven uh, seven, and on the other, now he's calling for the uh, the internment of of thousands of Muslims. That's it's just very troubling. And uh, well, the weird thing about the whole situation is that from the kind of power that powers that B's perspective it's it's a win-win situation because like Joe was saying they they rely on an anti-muslim sentiment so by tacitly and covertly supporting islamic extremism they can keep that up by you know having the threat constantly there then on the other hand if it comes time where they actually choose or have to do something about it they can round them, round all these guys up in internment camps either way you know it's you know, it's it's a it's a benefit for for the you know the deep state, the people in power. But then on the other hand, it's a it's a lose lose for the for um, you know society in general from a certain perspective. Um, I mean, because a it probably you know every, well before I get to that, every every time one of these attacks happens and it comes out that one of these guys was known you know previously known to MI5 and had multiple interactions with them, blah blah blah, and then everyone says, well, why didn't you do anything? Well, what could they have done? Well, you know, I don't know. What can they arrest these people for if they haven't, uh, um, you know, committed a crime? Well, maybe, you know, on terrorism offenses or something. Well, that would mean they'd have to round up all these guys and it would basically look like internment. I mean, if you just arrest all these people for their jihadist views. So, well, there's that. But then from the the lose-lose perspective, it's like, well, A, if they continue to do do nothing, they're going to continue to be terror attacks. So that's a lose. And on the other hand, if there's internment, well, you know, we've we know. Well, historically, internment camps haven't generally um, been a very or positive thing. There's always evils that go along with them, so that would be a lose too. So um, it's just like uh, it's any way you look at it, it's it's a a really messed up situation, and right. you know, it's gotten that way from just decades of of policies and practices that have have gotten us into this situation where. You know, it, it's really hard to think. Well, what would an actual solution be that, you know, doesn't have negative consequences? I can't think of one. 
Blow up Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, no, but it's, well, it is very right. interesting. It's interesting when you think about the idea of uh, of of this of ISIS and is, uh, Islamic terror threat and stuff, and what's actually going on, and and the way it's been pre- the way it's been presented, and the way it actually is, which is that unlike previous conflicts, where, for example, using one close to home in the UK, for example, with the IRA and stuff, uh, or in Spain with ETA, those groups weren't terrorist groups in in, in the con- well, they weren't terrorist groups at all, really. Um, and certainly not in the context of ISIS or, the, as we know, Islamic terrorism today. And those groups had very specific grievances and um, demands that they wanted met that to any person who was impartial, let's say, in the situation, uh, they, would be, they, were, they could be seen as reasonable demands. It's just about finding a way for both sides to come together and, and meet them. So, so neither side, let's say, in, in these conflicts. In fact, in the IRA British state conflict, the, the most unreasonable demands and the most unreasonable side was the British state. The, the most reasonable demands were the demands coming from, from the IRA. But anyway, the point is that in, in most other conflicts of this nature, where you have non-state actors, whatever you want to call them, uh, guerrilla groups, uh, fighting against the state, there are grievances that they are fighting for that can, in theory, be easily resolved and easily and, and the conflict brought to an end. But with ISIS, this is where it's the, the deviousness of it and the dastardly nature of whoever is behind ISIS uh, becomes apparent when you realize that there's nothing you can give these people uh, that will well, that will that will make them go away, mm-hmm. that will stop them. Uh, that they will accept or that would be acceptable to you or to any rational sane human being, i.e. what they want is or what they claim to want is is for the black flag of ISIS to be hanging over Downing Street or over Buckingham Palace or over the White House, right? They want everybody in the freaking world to be uh, covering their wives and their daughters up in black black trash bags and uh, practicing Sharia law and and wearing neck beards. They want everybody to look... They want everybody to look like Jihadi John and Jihadi Jane, whatever, right? And that is obviously such a ridiculous and farcical uh, request. It's just like, who are these people? You, you would dismiss them as buffoons if it wasn't for the fact that somehow they seem to be able to blow people up in Western countries. So what do you do? Well, obviously that pushes the situation to the point of a kind of an internment solution, as, as you guys have been talking about, where people say, well, listen, you can't. You can't negotiate with these people. You simply have to lock them up or kill them on on mass or something because there's no way you can negotiate with them. What they want is completely nihilistic. They want basically the death of Western society. They want the death of everybody in Western society who doesn't convert to Islam. So, like, just push them all off a cliff or something. You know, that, that, that's the rational uh, of the natural uh, conclusion that people will come to in response to those people. And of course, that's perfect for anybody who might be wanting a kind of a clash of civilizations or serious social disorder in the UK and in other European countries that have high percentages of Muslim populations, you know, and, and if, if yeah. you think, uh, if you think um, conspiratorially enough, I suppose, but to me, from a certain mindset, if you understand these people in power in the West as kind of sadists, this is actually what they want. They, they actually get their, jo- their jollies or their kicks out of uh, creating chaos and, and squeezing people and watching people squirm, including their own people. And this seems to be a perfect recipe for them to be able to do that. Yeah, um, much further afield, but very close to home. Um, between the Manchester and London bombings, there were a couple of high-profile attacks in Australia. Um, now, in actual terms, I don't think they amounted to, to, to that much. I think there was a stabbing of a police officer 
and something similar to that in Melbourne. Anyway, it's got the Australian media talking at, at the same time that this is going on back home in the motherland. Um, there's a headline in, in from the Australian press, Australia to build its first terrorist jail amid rise in Islamist-inspired attacks. Now, they wouldn't put camps or internment in the headlines, but they're on the way to implementing a kind of actual camp for such people, right? A terrorist jail. So it's a kind of a halfway house, sort of testing the waters. The guy they cited um, as an authority on this idea himself, he used the term internment, Colonel Richard Kemp, former head of the British government's crisis response committee. That's the COBRA you've all heard about. Mm -hmm. Whenever there's a terrorist attack in the UK, uh, Theresa May has to go to her bunker and it's a COBRA meeting. It's an emergency response meeting. Well, isn't that interesting? She's not the head of it. It's this military guy, Colonel Richard Kemp. Oh, yeah. He is. He has been on like 16 tours in the north of Ireland, so he knows what internment's about. And he sort of... Um, forestalled criticism of himself and his involvement in internment in the North by saying, oh, we're going to do it right this time. It won't be like in Northern sure. Ireland, where yeah. torture was rife and a lot of innocents were swept up in it, where they would bash down people's doors and just drag them out screaming in the middle of the night. And, of course, he knows no, all about these kinds of practices because Colonel Richard Kemp was the head of British forces in Afghanistan last decade. Mm -hmm. This is the, yeah. the most high-profile figure I've heard calling for internment, and he's being he's all over the Australian press. They're going for it slowly. Those people but are there. Those people, yeah, they are. They are going for it, and and I mean, it's not that those people involved in it are actually, um, you know, are, are kind of behind the scenes uh, involved in the in the planning or carrying out of, of terror attacks or grooming of jihadis or anything like that. These these guys, I think, even this guy that you're talking about, Kemp, uh, would just be. He's there to kind of like like Theresa May and other politicians who don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, they're just they're they're just to react and to to come up with these obvious, natural, logical, rational ex explanations to uh, a situation or an atmosphere or conditions that are being produced by people uh, in the deep dark bunker type thing. Uh, you know, way way back in the in the shadows type thing. Uh, but internment would be a really bad idea, actually, because I mean, anywhere it's been practiced, all it does it's it's one sure way to uh, if you've got a like a a, a group of people, a, a guerrilla group or a irregular army fighting against the state, if you intern uh, as many of those people as you possibly can, and and they're. Uh, Please hold while we take this call. Sorry, lost me there for a second. Um, if you intern them, uh, what happens is that you basically massively increase their, their support. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, amongst, yeah. uh, uh, Sympathy. In this case, amongst amongst uh, ordinary Muslims across, you radicalize. Uh, in, in a few days, in a few weeks of internment of Muslims in the UK, of jihadis in the UK, you would radicalize far more Muslims in the UK than ISIS could ever have hoped for. Right. Listen, guys, I got to push off. All right. Well, thanks for calling, okay. Joe. Great show. Bye. Thanks for calling. Sorry, Joe. I stayed. Sorry, sorry, I hung okay. up. Sorry, I held up the line too long. <laughs> no problem. Take care. I'll See talk ya. later. Bye. 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 Thanks, Joe. Uh, Red Fox in the chat room points out.
Australia already has internment camps for asylum seekers on an island off the coast. Mm -hmm. The UK also has already internment camps for asylum seekers. Yes, good point. I mean, uh, the facts are, are, be, are built on the ground anyway. We just don't call them that yet. Mm -hmm. The terms are adjusting to meet the growing facts on the ground anyway. That's that's what's doubly scary about it. It isn't an issue of, oh, it's creeping in and now let's have a national debate about it. No, they only allow the debate once it's up and running. Um, good point. But well, maybe now would be a good time to... Um, yeah. To, to that, um, discuss uh, either the terrorist attack in Tehran this past week, and or because they seem to be related in an offhanded way, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE's um, sanctions and, and diplomatic row against Qatar. Um, Absolutely. Because um, I, I mean, these are two major events. Uh, as I just said, they're they're kind of connected in in some ways, uh, considering the parties involved and um, and the and the proxy armies involved. Uh, it does get back a little bit to the the theme of the show, which is kind of like ISIS, ISIS everywhere. Um, so, we, do we want to start well, in Tehran or absolutely? Start? No, no, because it comes in a sequence, doesn't it? Mm. Monday, last week, holy Shiite Muslims, <laughs> Saudi Arabia <laughs> issues the first state acknowledgement. Think about it. I mean, this was lost in, in all the uproar and, and the, the chaos that followed. Saudi Arabian government issued the first acting government statements admitting, acknowledging, tacitly implying whatever, stating directly that ISIS, that has the world by the nuts if you believe your media, is a creature of a state. It is funded by, armed, trained, supported by a state. It's out there. It's actually gotten out there, but it's gotten out there in such a weird way that blink and you'll miss it. Mm -hmm. There you go, 15 years of Islamic terrorism, 9-11, <laughs> 7 Madrid, over and over, Paris, Paris again, Berlin, London. Suddenly there's a spotlight shone and we all see the, the, the mastermind, Saudi Arabia, thank you Saudi Arabia, you revealed the mastermind, you pull back the burqa and it's <laughs> Qatar. Qatar? <laughs> What? Qatar? What do you mean it's Qatar? Of course it's Qatar. We knew that already. But it's only Qatar. That, I mean, that's just like, wow. 15 years of being labeled insane conspiracy theorists. And yeah, they suddenly, it's like what the, that expression, you know, first they ridicule you for telling the truth. And then they end up mundanely agreeing with you. Oh, of course. But yeah, everyone knew that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I suppose that's a win for us. Uh, not a very satisfactory one, of course, because it's wrapped up in a lie. What an astonishing turn of events. So Qatar has been outed as holding the bloody knife. Or rather, I've, mis I've mixed up my metaphors. They gave Qatar the, Qatar the bloody knife and then they pointed the spotlight at them. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's incredible, but it's also credible. There is some context, some backstory to it. Um, Qatar 
is the founder of ISIS, says Saudi Arabia last Monday, and begins, it cuts diplomatic relations, it banned any air travel, it's blockaded the country. I don't know how bad this is in real terms yet for people living there. Um, I haven't, I haven't got, I haven't got a, a read on that yet, but apparently it could. I mean, they're serious, and this could go to you know humanitarian crisis levels mm-hmm. very rapidly. Anyway, it's only been five days, but yeah, suddenly Saudi Arabia, almost as if it's sensing the mass awareness in the West or something, especially in the UK, when people are talking about Saudi Arabia and its connections with ISIS, and then it just turns around and said he did it. Um, <laughs> Now, well, just, uh, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Well, well the, you, the, the Saudis, they issued four press statements, and, and two of them mentioned it's because Qatar is, is ISIS. And apparently, someone must have said, this is not good PR wise. And so they revert, they ended up with their fourth statement no, 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 simply Qatar funds terrorism mm-hmm. in general terms. Um, but it was too late by then, the cat was out of the bag. Um, yeah, Harrison. Well, what's next? Well, what? Well, just to to one thing you said about the you know the scale of it, and you know, you, like you said, it's just been five days, so we can't know exactly how bad things are going to get for Cutter. But um, some of the like the possibilities, just looking at um, you know the way things have been, because Cutter's a you know pretty tiny country. Its only natural border is with Saudi Arabia, and. Um, Saudi Arabia closed the border and there's only like one highway that goes in between and it's either like either 40 or 60 percent of all food into Qatar comes across that border so they closed the border and so immediately that raised the possibility of you know massive food shortages so people in the country were stocking up on food you know emptying the supermarkets because they you know they knew the border was closing so immediately after that um, um, both Iran and Turkey said that they would um, fly in food supplies and they immediately started doing so. So Iran, like within, I think, two or three days, the first shipment of food from Iran came to Qatar. And Turkey has said the same thing and and even Turkey, and then Erdogan says, oh, we're going to, um, you know, I'm going to sign some legislation to authorize more Turkish troops to, to be you know, stationed in Qatar. Uh, they already have, you know, a minor... Um, contingent of troops stationed there, but they're going to, you know, send more. And and that legislation just passed either yesterday or the day before. So there's that going on. Um, when we look at just kind of what happened, um, it came on the heels of Trump's, you know, big massive visit to Saudi Arabia where he worshipped the orb. Um, and so there's some, you know, speculation about what was going on there. And of course, you know, there's, there have been Trump's tweets afterwards saying, oh, you know, he talked to his Saudi friends and, you know, was talking about funding of terrorism and, oh, oh they were all talking about Qatar. And so, yeah, it's great. Something's happening. Meanwhile, you know, Tillerson and the rest of the, you know, the, of the official U.S. government are saying, oh, you know, well, it seems that they are kind of caught off guard by this and not, not even very happy about it. Tillerson just had a meeting or a phone call um, with Lavrov in Russia saying, uh, oh, we need to solve this by negotiations. Um, Tillerson's saying that this, the blockade of, of Qatar damages the, you know, the U.S.'s fight against terrorism, <clears throat> and partially because the U.S.'s biggest 
airbase in the in the Middle East is in Qatar, and that's so that's basically where they run their operations. Uh, you know, their coalition effort against ISIS, um, you know, in Iraq and Syria is from Qatar. So there's that to consider. And um, you mentioned like the four statements that, that came from Saudi Arabia. Well, they they released their um, like their ten demands against Qatar, and so this is basically it's it's really ridiculous when you think about it, and you you look at and you just try to like think of what's going on in terms of maybe just forget about the Middle East and try to think of if something similar would happen in in like Western nations, just to to see how insane what's going on is, and you you read the the demands that are given to to Qatar. It's basically like these are the terms of your complete and utter you know total surrender to us. It's totally over the top. But among those um, demands, you you can see what's really going on because mixed in with those 10 demands, they're basically saying, um, you know, there's the general reference to Qatar and their support for terrorism. But the specifics they mention are um, relations with Hamas because Hamas has like a a bunch of people basically um, in Qatar and they have pretty good relations with the, the rulers of Qatar. And to essentially cease and desist all um, positive interactions with Iran. Mm-hmm. And and then on top of that, to, to shut down Al Jazeera. Well, that would be like, um, you know, the U.S. and Canada getting into a spat and the U.S. demanding that, the, you know, that Canada close all of its, um, you know, or, you know, its biggest... Um, you know, media network, which is, I mean, just, it's just ridiculous. Or like, you know, get trying to get the UK to close down the BBC because the BBC said something they didn't like. It's, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. Now, Al Jazeera, of course, is a propaganda outlet. They, uh, they, you could call them the, the fake news version in the Middle East or the fake news, you know, purveyor of the Middle East. They are the ones behind, um, totally stoking up and, and manufacturing a lot of the details of the Arab Spring and, you know, what was going on in Libya, false reports, fake, you know, staged reports about, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the uprising against Gaddafi, which was totally fictional. Same thing in, in Syria. They've been totally um, pro-Syrian rebel. Um, but that's kind of besides and, the point. Bes- oh, go ahead. Well, and, and they've had on their TV stations blaring out across the Arab world. I don't know if it was in Algeria or English, but they have had on. Uh, Jabat al-Nusra people, yeah, who are indistinguishable. These people wave the black flag, and they have them on not to rip into them. They have them on to give them a bloody platform. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not just Arab Spring and to you know somehow sort of liberalize the Middle East. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're supporting the proxy forces. They are supporting these terrorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just it's not just a blurry line where they're like supporting the rebels because you know they don't like Assad because they want Assad gone because he's a bad man. In addition, they're actively giving a platform to terrorists. Right. So and what's so interesting about that is that both Saudi Arabia and Qatar have their own versions of Al Qaeda, have their own proxy forces, and it's like, no, my my proxy force is going to take control of Libya. No, mine is. So. Uh, the backdrop of this also has been a uh, for the past three or four years, uh, each of Qatar and Saudi Arabia's proxy forces fighting on either side of uh, trying to take control of Libya, uh, also fighting in Syria, um, 
Harrison, you mentioned that one of the terms in, in uh, the Saudi Arabian uh, letter to uh, Qatar was um, the kind of uh, pushing, um, kind of relinquishing its, uh, its tacit support for Iran. Um, Iran is the arch nemesis of Saudi Arabia. Um, and ISIS. And we've had, we've had statements coming from the, uh, the new deputy of, um, the guy who's the kind of son of, of one of the, um, the sheiks there in, in Saudi Arabia, kind of, uh, making words against Iran and saying that the fight is going to be taken inside of uh, Iran very soon, and sure enough, we've we've had these acts of terror. Um, Qatar has had uh, and established a kind of business relationship with Iran recently. Uh, they both share gas fields uh, that are some of the largest in the Middle East. Um, so they they really, you know, they don't share Saudi Arabia's intense hatred of of Iran. Uh, so that's also the backdrop next to decades of palace intrigues and Saudi Arabia trying to undercut uh, Qatar and and kind of depose its leaders. Um, so, you know, you, you also mentioned that uh, this is coming just on the heels of uh, Trump's magic orb tour of Saudi Arabia. The and magical orb tour? The magical, the magical mystery Saudi Arabian Middle Eastern orb tour. And, um, you know, there's some speculation that Trump's rhetoric against Iran uh, when he visited kind of emboldened Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. to to finally give its orders uh, to its proxies in um, in Iran and and kind of uh, implement this terror attack we just saw on Monday, uh, which is hellacious. It strikes right in the heart of the government. 17 people were killed, uh, I think uh, some citizens, some staffers and parliamentarians. And they actually went into the mausoleum of the Ayatollah Khomeini, who is the kind of religious and political leader who, who brought um, Iran to this new stage of, of, of geopolitical uh, stature in 1979 when, when they took over government from the shop and ousted him. So, I mean, this, this strikes right to the heart of, uh, of everything that, uh, the Iranian people and government kind of stand for and, and are very patriotic about. And it kind of fulfills the promise that we heard only a month ago, uh, from this guy, I forget his name in Saudi Arabia, who said that they, the war would be brought to Saudi Arabia. So we have these two or to Iran. To Iran, yeah, um, from Saudi Arabia, uh, who, by the way, is denying any involvement in the attack. Mm -hmm. And Iran is is blaming Saudi Arabia for the attack. They are, but well, just just some things to consider. First of all, that Qatar is not innocent. Like everything that's being said about them, for the most part, is totally right. accurate. So Qatar has been one of the main sponsors of terrorism in the Middle East. It's just that. Uh, there is this aspect of total hypocrisy because Saudi Arabia has been the other main sponsor of terrorism in the Middle East. So to have one of them calling out the other and all of the, like all of well, the vast majority of the Arab nations ganging up on Qatar, it's just, it just screams of, you know, something more going on here. 
and that's why you know it looks like the the main uh, the main issue really has been Qatar's relations with Iran. Now, because the the way this mm-hmm. whole thing got started, or at least this is the official story, is that it got started because of this hack. So what happened was Al uh, I think it was Al Jazeera had had put out a re- maybe it wasn't I can't remember had put out a report basically say like uh, of something that the the leader of Qatar had said basically um, nice things about Iran in some way and about relations with with Iran. And then it got taken down like within a half hour and all the other Arab nations. Because of a Saudi backlash. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so all the, like the Saudis and all the rest of them were totally irate that this, that the Emir had said this. And then the, the Qataris then say, oh, you know, we were hacked. This is a fake report. He never actually said that. Um, You know, our, our website got hacked and this was a false story. And well, then, you know, a couple of days later, the FBI, the, the Americans say, oh, it was a Russian hack. Well, they just had to say that. So we'll, we'll, we'll let them slide on that. But then uh, um, the second thing was this release of emails. Um, supposedly, this, these were emails like over a two or three year period from um, this guy, Otaib. I think he was the like the Qatari ambassador to the UK or something, some Western country. And all these emails and the, the two kind of um, main points from these emails were that um, – or maybe it wasn't – oh, I'm getting my, my facts mixed up. Was it a Qatari guy, Otaib, um, or was it UAE? I think it was the UAE. I think that's correct. Yeah, no, he wasn't Qatari. UAE. He was from the United Arab Emirates. Mm-hmm. He was the ambassador from there. And the, these emails had – shown him interacting with various people like John Hanna, um, an American, I believe, and basically saying that and showing that he was planning like to and doing various things to to uh, demonize Qatar and make them, you know, uh, sully their name, basically, and was running these kinds of operations to um, to undermine Qatar. And so these were these two kind of leaks that that uh, well two events one leak and one one alleged hack um, that led to this situation. Um, now you know it's hard to know who to believe on which side which of these are are um, legit and which aren't. Um, I'll just throw in there that Wayne Madsen says that you know has some sources that tell him that both of them were that both were essentially faked and that this was an operation run by Sheldon Adelson. Um, like the so it was basically the Israelis and uh, Sh- Sheldon Nielsen, who's basically Trump's big you know is uh, Israel advisor and and funder, and that they had run this operation to basically create the the split between Qatar and the other Arab states, um, to to for the purpose of um, you know messing up relations with Qatar and Iran, basically revenge on Qatar for getting close to Iran. Um, which would make sense um, because Israel is virulently anti-Iran and will seemingly do anything and everything to, um, uh, you know, stop Iran from gaining any kind of influence anywhere. That's just what they like doing. So there's that. There's un- un- Go ahead. There's undoubtedly intelligence intrigue involved in this, but the Saudis' reaction is so set in one direction 
that I, I doubt it's simply that they were duped, but that they were yeah. waiting for the castle's belly, the reason to do it. Mm-hmm. And now it's happening. I think, and there is some backstory, but we should point out first and foremost that Qatar and Saudi Arabia <clears throat> have been neck deep in the same blood in Libya, in Syria, of course, in Yemen. Mm-hmm. And this is an astonishing turnaround. And it's an astonishing turnaround for the reasons you mentioned. And it, it comes down to Iran. It comes down to, do you remember the, the articles written by Joe explaining how the gas issues in the region were key to understanding the reason for the bloodshed in Syria? Mm-hmm. Qatar geographically is point, it's right next to Iran. They share this in the world's largest gas field. Qatar has like the most developed uh, uh, extraction facilities for that gas field. But Iran is quickly catching up. Sooner or later, those two are going to have to talk to each other about this enormous resource they both share under the Persian Gulf. Sooner or later, geography was going to determine reality. And sooner or later, Saudi Arabia, in hindsight, I can say that sooner or later, Saudi Arabia was going to lash out at anyone getting out of line. I think it's just that they happened to have gone at Qatar first. It could have been someone else. You notice that Kuwait has stepped in to mediate between Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Yep. Strong suggesting that they're kind of like also not, you know, not, they might go along with this initially, but, uh, they're on the fence because they too understand the geographic reality of being right next to Iran. So and Russia, Russia too has. It looks like Russia will will come forward as a mediator. Um, I can't I can't recall if they've actually officially said that or not, or if it's mostly been hints and like maybe we will, maybe we won't. But um, but they did. I, I believe Russia too did send um, aid, so food to to Qatar. Which is interesting, because if you look if you look at this, like this is a this is huge news, and it looks like basically a redrawing of some of the you know geostrategic maps in the Middle East. And if you look at what like Saudi Arabia and everyone else was trying to accomplish, well, were they expecting Qatar to just totally surrender? Well, maybe they were, because you know the Saudis in particular are just totally arrogant and. Um, um, you know, that's just their mindset, the the kind of, well, I'll beat you until you submit and you give me what you want, what I want. But Qatar is not, uh, it hasn't given any indication that they're going to just surrender. They've, and in fact, they have a pretty strong position. Um, like Saudi Arabia is the strong, the, like the strongest and most, um, the, the country most, most, most probable, or not most probable, um, most able and willing to intervene, like militarily, if they have to, which is not very likely. Um, none of the other, like Arab states, are have very good big militaries. The only other one that does is Egypt, and Egypt isn't very likely to get that involved in it. But if you look at who's supporting Qatar, it's Turkey and Iran. Turkey already has troops there, and Iran, like n- no one, uh, uh, none of these countries would. Uh, like really ever dream of well they might dream about it but they never actually would get into a military confrontation with Iran a serious one because Iran is just too powerful mm-hmm. 
And then if you have the Russians there as me as mediators, um, basically doing like what they do, what they're doing in Astana uh, for Syria, it, it looks like the, the direction this is going is just going to totally backfire on the Saudi Arabians. They're actually pushing Qatar in the direction of increased ties with Iran and Turkey and Russia and giving Russia um, the opportunity to gain more influence in the region and be the the the, the master negotiator and the one the, the the country that has the most influence and um, well yeah just the most influence in in the nation or in the region mm-hmm. by uh, by yeah. developing these relations and sorting out all the problems so it's kind of, it's kind of funny that this is the way it's happening that they they're so angry at Qatar for their for cozying up with Iran and that's exactly what's going to be the result of this blockade mm-hmm yeah, it's it is funny uh, how every time one of these intrigues occurs, uh, the the responsible, calm, almost parental Russia uh, is being um, is volunteering and sometimes called upon uh, to mediate, um, which is which is exactly what you know Western interests don't want to happen. Uh, they, they they are seething. Um, with the possibility and the reality of, of Russia having any kind of influence in Syria, uh, now Qatar, uh, quite possibly. Um, and, uh, you know, that there is a, there is a precedent getting back to the attack in, in Tehran for using, uh, proxy forces as we've just seen, uh, to, to kind of bend, I, you know, you, it, it's hard even to to imagine what it is uh, the people who give the commands, the orders to send in these terrorists, what they're thinking, because uh, they already know that that Iran is very strong, it's very resilient, it's very determined to uh, resist any kind of subjugation or or blackmail or terrorism. It already had. Uh, several of its uh, nuclear scientists killed in, in assassinations. Uh, it's already kind of um, resisted a, uh, I think it was the Stuxnet uh, mm-hmm. computer attack, uh, all kinds of intimidation. Uh, w- what is it that they hope to achieve? Uh, you can only imagine that, it, that it, this is a pure kind of lashing out, uh, a destructive kind of, wicked uh revenge um for for iran having any kind of constructive influence in syria and and now Qatar. i know what it i know the real explanation mm-hmm. it's a suicide pact <laughs> well it is <laughs> and it and and if and by extension it's not it's not just a suicide pact of of the of the wahhabis or the jihadists who have sworn fealty to their ideals but it it is a suicidal political kind of road that that Saudi Arabia is on. It, it can come to no good, uh, and the sooner they get off it, the better. But uh, you don't expect any common sense to come from them anytime soon. Well, there's just no. there's one other thing. They can't they... go ahead, Neil. Go on. No, I'll wait. They they, they can't. This is the thing. Obviously. Well, you say they can't. Well, yes, Neil, they can. They could choose not to be such pirates. The thing is, the way they the way they are is the way they've always been. All that's changing is that more people are getting to see them for their true nature. So they blockade Qatar because it's getting too close to Iran. And then suddenly ISIS, for the first time ever, 
successfully carries out a terrorist attack in Tehran. I mean, do they not? They think people are stupid. That that is them lashing out, like you said, and it's not. It's not. You said it was pure lashing out. I wouldn't characterize it as that. A pure lash out would be to fire ICBMs at Tehran. It's the sneaky way. It's using the means available, given the realities that everyone is armed to teeth. So we use these dirty ways to get at each other. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, they can't because look at the sequence. Trump goes to Saudi Arabia making deals. It's disputed as to what real tangible deals were made. But it looks good. Internationally, well, it doesn't. It looks terrible because there's Trump going against selling out his base badly on the international stage by cozying up to the guys he was accusing of being behind 9-11 or being involved in 9-11 just a month before, or a year before on a campaign trail. And there he is doing the same thing he attacked Obama for, bowing to the Saudi king, kissing butt. And he also can't not do it. He has to. They're in it together, like we discussed earlier with the UK establishment being interwoven with the Saudis. They're all, they've nowhere to go but with this route they've always known. That's all that has changed that this status quo is emerging. It's becoming emergent in that people get to see it in your face for the first time. But it's the way it always was, and there's no no real way out of it. The, because to acknowledge there's a way out of it is to acknowledge that the United States has no business being there, or if they do, why not? Has no business being there and telling everyone how to run their own affairs. Mm-hmm. And they cannot let that slide. Because that that, I'm sure, it was probably explained to Trump, in, in terms of raw numbers, about the impact it would have on the U.S. for Saudi Arabia to no longer be a key gas station, not just for the U.S. directly in terms of selling oil to the United States. The U.S. produces a lot of its own oil. But what that meant for knock-on U.S. interests that all plug back into sustaining the U.S. economy as it's currently structured and, and as it's been structured for 70 damn years yeah, he wanted to change everything and rebuild the country. But when it was explained to him how much it would bleed the country to disconnect itself from the Saudi alliance, for example, it's not the only one that's key to the U.S., he probably went, oh, God, I have to, I have to go. The first country I'm going to have to visit internationally is the one <laughs> I said was involved in 9-11 that, that, that got me elected, you know. He, but he, he must have been naive beforehand because now he's learning how things are. Hmm. Anyway, that's Trump. But the, the, my point was that they, they're locked in it together. The Saudis are just doing what they have to do. Otherwise, they have to acknowledge the new reality. And they can't do that. Mm-hmm. Iran has more oil and gas than them. Iran has four times the population. It's also Shiite, not Sunni. There's another factor. Uh, and it's got a capable military the, that can absolutely kick anyone's butt, more or less, in the Middle East if it wanted to. Certainly in the region. Yeah. yeah. The, the the contradictions must come to the fore. That's that's the thing that's hitting me in the face over and over this week. 
whether it's internally, like in the UK, or whether it's on a larger scale in relations between countries, the existing contradictions that hold the system as it is are all coming out. And they must be resolved. It's creating crisis in the process. And it will lead to worse and worse crisis for everyone on this planet. But it must happen. They must be resolved. Um, we're getting back to, yeah, I mean, the, the go ahead. Well, <laughs> it's, it, you were talking about contradictions no. uh, being the, the, one of the underlying themes here with all of these stories. And um, just along these lines, I don't know if either of you heard, because it just came out, uh, who's going to who's going to be representing yes. Qatar in uh, in uh, kind of spinning its um, its its image its global image now that it's been accused of being responsible for uh, for all this proxy terror in 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 the Middle East and that was uh, no one less than John Ashcroft um, Ashcroft if you remember was the Secretary of I believe it was Defense under uh, Bush in his first administration. So he, he was the guy, uh, he was, he was one of these guys Bible thumper, right? and a serious Bible thumper who uh, implemented all of this, um, this kind of anti-terror legislation, uh, basically uh, assisting uh, Bush in dismantling a lot of civil rights in the U S uh, this was a guy who, who lost the, his, senatorial seat before he became secretary of defense to a, to a man who died in a plane crash. That's who he lost the election to. Uh, that's how unpopular he was in his, uh, in his native state. Uh, in any case, he, he has since, um, gotten out of, uh, out of public office and started a law firm. And so he's being paid two and a half million dollars, uh, for, um, for 90 days work. Uh, or his firm is being paid this in order to uh, to spin Qatar's kind of um, it, the perceptions about this country uh, for everyone and 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 review all of its laws and and kind of put a, a stamp of American approval on them. Um, it's just part of this kind of revolving door of politicians, both uh, creating the conditions of you know like this like this inspector in London who was part of 7-7 and now calling for internment camps, uh, you know, they're, they're playing both ends of things. It's just remarkable. So uh, Ashcroft is a real goofball, although dangerous one at that. And it's just fascinating to see these, these Americans who, uh, who are so anti-terror coming to the defense for a nice paycheck of, of the countries who are uh, primarily responsible for terror. Mm -hmm. Well, one or two more things um, that I've been thinking about on this uh, this development. One, just coming back to something that I said before about Russia. Um, the Russian policy has basically been, well, their foreign policy is essentially to try to turn enemies into neutrals, neutrals into allies, and allies into friends. And so that's the general direction they want to go in. So there's no denying that Qatar has been... Um, you know, funding and, you know, greatly responsible for a lot of the rebel jihadis in Syria, even until very recently. Now, if Russia were to come in and mediate 
and you know continue to to give some level of support to Qatar, not necessarily you know full blown um, you know military support and you know the whole hog, just to continue kind of their generally positive um, you know response to Qatar, then Qatar has to give something in return, and and it, looking at that too from the perspective of Iran and Turkey, so you've got this. I mean, um, for for everything said about Turkey, they still are, um, I'd say, more on the Russian side in Syria than the American side. That's debatable, of course, but uh, that's at least the the way it, it uh, it's been playing out, like in Astana and uh, you know in the north of Syria. <clears throat> but essentially, Qatar, its role in Syria has just been cut down, no pun intended, um, significantly. They're not in a position where they can continue to to do this because they're out in the open now. They're in public, so for them to continue supporting terrorists in Syria it would, first of all, it just wouldn't be very good PR because everyone's looking for it, and it's in the news. So any move they make in that direction would just be pounced upon. Now that's a good thing for Syria because all of their groups, um, unless they you know start getting Saudi paychecks. Um, there have been rumors of reports that uh, that the that both the Saudi and Qatar Qatari um, groups in Syria have been um, essentially like neutered. They can't really do anything because they've they haven't been getting the support that they've been they've been needing in this last week or two. So that's just an interesting development, and even that you know plays into the the Russian and the Syrian side of this equation. Um, another example of the Saudis kind of shooting themselves in the foot and not getting the results that they want. And the the other thing is that um like I said Qatar isn't uh doesn't have zero options here. Even if you look at this interaction with uh John Ashcroft hiring him basically for PR purposes to clean up their image. Um Qatar just because of their relations and their their um their involvement in this whole thing for decades have a lot of friends in high places. So it's not like they're just, um, you know, completely isolated. I just want to throw that in there just to, to show that the, I don't know, you know, I don't know what the Saudis are really thinking if they thought that they could just get away with this or if they've got, you know, another plan or, you know, another agenda, you know, in addition to just the, what it appears to be, because if it's just what it, what it appears to be, then the Saudis are just coming off looking like, you know, idiot blowhards. I think it might be. They're, what, they're what banking it on what they're banking on what they've always banked on: mm-hmm. um, support from the West, even if it doesn't come from the official government of, say, the UK, or the US. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they can rely on the so-called deep state support. Um, that's been their backer since those pirates um, were taken down off Campbell's back in the early twenties, um, or before that, even during during the Great War to end all wars when the British basically empowered these nut jobs in the first place and have been there, have had their back ever since. Um, there's one other key thing that's playing into the urgency of this situation, and that's what's going on in Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine Qatar is looking at and acknowledging, holy crap, but it's, it's failed. Apparently they did make some statements more or less acknowledging that Assad would remain in power that also pissed off people in Riyadh. Um, the news this week, well, it, it, it's news every week 
they slowly make increasing gains. Um, I heard that uh, Syrian state forces had reached the Iraqi border at some point. Yeah. So they have made inroads all across the country now to the border with Iraq, um, which is why in recent weeks the U.S. has, I think, twice more lobbed or con- conducted some kind of airstrikes from Jordan, I think, into Syria to keep back advancing Syrian state forces. That's the most they can do, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, they're no doubt itching to just wash over the border and push the Syrians back, but then you've got a hot war. So they're they're riding this very fine line between keeping the Syrian state forces back and simply just watching them because they're kicking ISIS, um, but seriously, big time. ISIS, of course, on the run also. Watch this base in the northeast of Syria, that is looking more and more like a done deal. Um, the so-called Syrian Democratic Forces, which is basically Kurdish fighters, uh, are taking on ISIS from the north. They're consolidating their power, their their military hold there. And I heard we hear this week that the Kurds in Iraq across the border have announced a referendum date for yeah. an independence referendum in September. Watch the space. Mm-hmm. So it looks like they're, they're going to, I mean, that's the plan B. That's all they've got, and they're going to have to push it. Um, because the plan A, and what's left of it, using ISIS to get rid of Assad, it's over. And I think Qatar, I imagine, are among the people acknowledging that reality, whereas Saudi Arabia just won't let it go. Um, Assad must go. It's still the mantra in Riyadh. So there's probably a there was probably a showdown about that issue, about that one specific regional issue. But mm. yeah, like we said, it all comes back under the bigger picture for Saudi Arabia, which is that Iran is its natural competitor, and it doesn't want Iran to, to overtake it. Well, just, isn't just it funny? Back to just getting how, back to Syria for just a moment. Um, you know, there, there's also been. Okay, but, 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 go ahead. We haven't got much time left, and we still have to go to the Philippines. So let's let's wrap this topic up. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. So, so there, there's been speculation that um, on some level uh, the U.S. has come to some tacit agreement um, in kind of uh, not supporting uh, the proxy forces or even the Free Syrian Army, um, and uh, some people are saying at least part of the reason might be Russia's coming out and saying, would you stop, you know, stop blocking our, our military from attacking ISIS already? Uh, so they've said that enough times and vociferously enough, I think that they, that the U S doesn't want that, uh, that being said anymore, but I just wanted to say that. And, uh, we could move on to the Philippines where, where there have been some more ISIS, uh, well, actions and just, conflict. Yeah. Let, let's just underscore this. This Russia, whether you listen to a statement from Russia or from the US or anyone else, when they say anything about terrorism, when Saudi Arabia says Qatar is funding the terrorists, they're all playing a game there. They know that's not the issue. So if it, good point, if a deal has been made in Syria and the US is on the whole backing off and letting what's naturally happening, ISIS being wiped off the map there, then a deal has been made upstairs in terms of what this means for the resources 
what this means for pipelines, what this means for rebuilding the country, who's getting the contracts to rebuild it. It's the business where the deals are made. The deals aren't made about who should be getting rid of who's terrorists or not. That's a, that's more like a consequence. This is that's a, that's an afterthought in the in these kinds of deal makings. Um, Joe wrote earlier this week that uh, in, in in commenting on Saudi Arabia's spat with Qatar, that to remind people that terrorism is a foil for the real deals that go on, resources, money including people, the movements of people, who gets to be independent and free or not, and for what reasons. That's all it is to all of them. It doesn't mean that they're all the same, of course, but that's where the real deals are made. Everyone tacitly agrees in one way or another that terrorism is a foil. A foil is a perfect term for this because to use something as a foil is, is an expression in English which is borrowed from... from uh, it's, it's borrowed from, from, from storytelling, actually, where, say, for example, you have a movie and there's a main plot in the movie. And then there's a subplot, which has nothing directly to do with the main plot. But if it's done in a clever way, either threaded through the main plot or simply told separately, maybe at the beginning or the end. If it's told in, this, in a way that it reflects the same dynamics that went on in the main plot, then it's, it's a foil. It's, it's a literary overlay. That's what terrorism is. It, it's overlaying. It can tell, if, if you follow the tracks of who's funding and then who's countering, it can tell you a lot about the underlying energetic dynamics of the main plot. So Qatar, Saudi Arabia, gas, gas lines, gas lines to Europe in particular, pushing out the Russians ensuring Anglo-American-led dominance over these key resources and therefore the re reasons for being in the Middle East and, and the maintenance of the status quo of them on top and everyone else submissive. So yes, ISIS falls in Syria and what do you know? It just rears its head in Southeast Asia. I don't know. I don't think we mentioned it on previous shows yet, but that, that again, the incredible timing of ISIS to pop up at key moments. Rodrigo Duterte, leader of the Philippines, was literally in Moscow meeting Putin to discuss procurement of weapons to deal with probably exactly these kinds of situations because they're under-equipped. And then ISIS takes over a whole city in the south. Morawi. Um, what's the latest stats on that situation? They're still there. Um, they seem to control at least part of the city. Mm -hmm. uh, there's about 60 civilians dead, I think. Yeah. It's probably yeah, a lot more hostages. I imagine if this, bat this, this battle's been raging for, what, three weeks now? Um, and then in an interesting turn of developments... Uh, you have the U.S. military kind of jumping in in a kind of advisory role. Special forces. Yeah, kind of uh, talking to the, the Marines and the other Philippine forces fighting the, uh, the ISIS contingent there. And uh, Duterte yeah. comes out and he says, I didn't invite them. I, I, don't, I don't even know why they're there. 
but they but but the u.s has to insinuate itself into the situation as the as either the savior or uh or the 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 kind of monkey wrench uh or the or the wrench that gets thrown in the gears uh wrong metaphor um uh, into into it's all a mafia these. protection it's it, a mafia protection racket it is you see i just bloodied your face I'm going to need to clean that up for you and make sure that guy, wait, that was me. But anyway, doesn't do it again. The U.S. has at least five major military bases in the Philippines. They probably have other facilities too. Now, you notice that in issuing their statements, um, the Pentagon (laughs) assured us that the Philippines government had requested U.S. Special Forces assistance in dealing with so-called, in quotes, ISIS forces in in their city. Well, then Duterte comes out and said, no, I learned about it like everyone else for the first time in the media. Mm-hmm. You, you see what's going on there. The, you, the, the Pentagon ha, has just ignored the civilian government. And of course, it would in this case because Duterte is like dead set against the deep state um, and the history of U.S. military involvement in the Philippines. But here's the thing, for all that Duterte has said, I mean, remember that for all he said about realigning with Russia and China and getting away from being a, a dependent of the United States, they still have military bases there, the U.S. Mm-hmm. And one of them, and, one of the biggest, uh, is on the same island as where this has kicked off. Um. There's a long history there. The Philippines, it was basically the first overseas, the first major overseas U.S. colony. Um, and it was administered as such for about four years. And that was the first time the uh, U.S. administrators back then realized it's way too expensive. And it's costing us lives. And it's a bloodbath to actually try and colonize these people 19th century style. So that was when they first developed um action at a distance and they've generally maintained a pro-american government in power for the last century um there have been some ins and outs since then but duterte you've got to understand represents the first time they've elected a leader who is like just saying it as he sees it talking with russia talking with china but the thing is, the facts on he might be wishing to go in that way, in that direction, but the facts on the ground remain the same. The U.S. has incredible military access to Southeast to to Philippines, and and most importantly, why why the Philippines is important to the U.S. today? That brings in the South China Sea, containing China, maintaining the ability to to threaten to cut off key trade routes, which China needs for energy to reach the country and then for its export, for its manufactured goods to come back the other way. So that's a major geopolitical hotspot. And wouldn't you know it, ISIS pops up. I think it was Joe who said um, a few months back, the thing about ISIS and support for ISIS is it's only to be found, if it is to be found at all, among minorities in the Arab world in particular. Well, here we are. ISIS, the black flag is in the Philippines. And they, they do have extremists too. They've had extremist Islamist groups for a long time. The guy who 
the the leader of Indonesia in next door in the 1960s, um, he was eventually assassinated. But there were several assassination attempts prior to that by extremist Muslim groups. I don't remember the names, but it's it's been well established since then that these quote unquote Muslim terror groups in Indonesia were created and funded by the CIA back then. So, uh, well, I can see I can see this. I think can see this getting bad very quickly, um, and that that serves U.S. interests. Mm-hmm. Um, this is different to this. This has more of the flavor of a Syria type situation, where now there's a foothold and more and more weapons and terrorists will flood in uh, to the Philippines. Apparently, most of the guys who are there now, of what there's hundreds or thousands, I'm not sure of the scale of it again, but that they're, they come in from neighboring Indonesia. Um, the Philippines, I think, is a, they have a Muslim minority. The, Indonesia, though, is a different beast because it is, it is Muslim, majority country. And it's a quarter of a billion people. So you can just use your imagination as to how many Muslims there have been tapped up, recruited, um, kept on ice for this kind of situation during the last 15 years of Jihadi Inc. Uh, imagine the Saudis have been busy there, the CIA, the usual suspects. They probably have a lot of things on standby, ready to pour in from Indonesia into the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Duterte is exactly the kind of person they don't want. A civilian nationalist openly talking about aligning with Moscow and Beijing. So I, I fear for the Philippines, but um, who knows? Who knows? Maybe it can be mitigated stopped, cleaned up quickly, but my suspicion is that this is going to turn into a Syria-type festering wound a decade long, maybe more. We'll see. What do you guys think? I have no idea. I'm just going to wait and see. <laughs> wait and see. That's a pretty good assessment right there. Um, but uh, who knows if uh, a Duterte might... Uh, request some assistance from from Russia uh, and or China who have an interest in seeing uh, the Philippines remain sovereign uh, especially now that he's made all of these uh, these these kind of offerings and uh, and and wanting to do business with them so yeah it's it's a it's another interesting situation and I just wanted to mention uh, from earlier I mentioned that John Ashcroft was the Secretary of Defense he was actually the US Attorney General uh, under Bush, uh, Secretary of Defense was uh, Donnie. We don't know what we don't know. Rumsfeld. So, so just a point of clarification. But um, yeah, did we want to say anything else about the Philippines at this point? Or no, not for me. Neil, any final um, thoughts? I think we should. I think we should. Yeah, I've got some final thoughts. Although, actually, I'm going to give the floor to the BBC. <laughs> I know, boo, mainstream media, boo. Actually, this is interesting. I've never seen an article like this um, in the English-speaking press, certainly not on the mainstream press. 
It was written um, the day after the election last week, Friday. And it's an it's an opinion piece, but it's by it's by a, a well known journalist in the UK, Nick Bryant, not the guy you're thinking of, Harrison. I think mm-hmm. it's a different Bryant. Yeah. Um, the title is "The End of the Anglo American Order." And I was like, well, that's curious. The, I, I'm not going to read it all out to you. The beginning of it, well, most of it is a synopsis of exactly that, the Anglo-American order. It's painting out in broad details the way things have been for the last 70 years, so since World War II. Of course, it leaves out all the gory details. But in the basic structure of it, it's all there. I mean, that alone is interesting. They don't really, you won't ever hear it. You might hear this in British universities. You, you have to look for it. You're not going to find it in the press. Anyway, so after sketching out the map, he writes, even before Mr. Trump took the oath of office, this looked more likely to be the Asian century rather than a repeat of the American century. More and more, the German chancellor looks like the leader of the free world, something that would have required a massive leap of imagination in the years immediately after World War II, when the English-speaking liberal global order was taking shape. Now, he's kind of gone off the deep end there with, nah, it's not so much off the deep end, it's wishful thinking. Angela Merkel, yeah, Germany is powerful, but he, he won't bring himself to say, who's really the leader of the free world. And that is, of course, Vladimir Putin um, with maybe the Chinese in, a, in an alliance. So he can't quite get out of the Western-centric way of thinking, but at least he's acknowledging that it's shifting east. He goes on. Winston Churchill, during the 1946 speech in Fulton, Missouri, in which he coined the phrase special relationship and also Iron Curtain, noted here is quoting Churchill, it is necessary that constancy of mind, persistency of purpose, and the grand simplicity of decision shall guide and rule the conduct of the English-speaking peoples in peace as they did in war. We must, and I believe we shall, prove ourselves equal to this severe requirement. End of quote. And he finishes, Bryant. Right now, both the United States and the United Kingdom seem to be failing that Churchillian test. These English-speaking nations no longer speak with such a clarion voice, and the rest of the world no longer takes such heed. A new world order seems to be emerging that is being articulated in other tongues. So yeah, that's conspiracy theory stuff right there on BBC. Thank you. But no, more seriously, it's it's... It's coming out in between the chaos and the, contra- the, the, the smaller scale contradictions that have yet to resolve themselves. themselves. You know, there's, there's insight coming into the West. There's big picture clarity. I mean, there's certainly in the UK, I think there's more of an acknowledgement of this than, say, in the US, um, where they'll be the last to let go. Um, the British in this situation. I mean, they went to China recently for the opening of the Silk Road Forum. They sent their, their finance minister. They're kind of on board, kind, kind of simply acknowledging reality. And that's 
almost like it's like the one thing the reality itself is challenging everyone to do in this time and that those who are last to acknowledge it or simply refuse to will be the ones who end up because of their intransigence producing the chaos in bloody forms like terrorism in short-sighted forms like manipulating the democratic expression of people through elections and rigging of referenda and so on. All these contradictions in all their forms are going to, they're tending towards working themselves out. And yeah, it's a tall, it's a, it's a tall order, you know, facing reality. Not everyone's going to do it. And so there will be chaos. How much remains to be seen. So on that happy note, um, <laughs> we will leave it there for this week. Um, thanks, guys, for being on the show. Elan and Harrison. Thanks to everyone in the chat room. And thanks to our special caller, Joe Quinn, who will be back with us soon. Don't you worry. Until next week, take care. See you soon. See you, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Take care, everyone.